Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Lenarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How's it going? I am well. How are you? All right, thank you. Yeah, fine. Um, our great dinosaur poem challenge continues to yield results. Thanks to our <laughs> wonderful listeners. So we've got um, one suggestion from Laura in New Zealand. She said, I know it's for children, but it's by the great Julia Donaldson of Gruffalo wow. fame. So yes. some, quite a lot of people will know a lot of her work by heart. <laughs> I, know, I know I still do. Um, and she said they were always very fond of Tyrannosaurus Drip, which starts, shall I give you the first two lines? Yeah, go on. In a swamp beside a river where the land was thick with veg, lived a herd of duckbill dinosaurs who roamed the water's edge. The duckbill dinosaurs, I think, are, are gentle veggies vegetarians and i think the a, a duckbill egg gets into the fearsome tyrannosaurus nest oh and it's about i know it's about it's about what happens is it a comedy or is it a tragedy you will have to read to find out <laughs> um and i received one uh, a nomination as well on twitter uh, yesterday from elizabeth dinosaurs in the hood by uh, the american poet denez smith and i hadn't heard this one i knew of denez smith because they co-host the poetry foundations podcast excellent podcast and because I've seen footage of them reading there, there's this heartbreaking poem called uh, Waiting on You to Die So I Can Be Myself. It's completely, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking and, and excellent. Uh, but this one, Dinosaurs in the Hood, was completely new to me. Uh, so I'll read the first line, as Lucy, you did, um, and as we did with Edwin Morgan's poem last week, uh, because it kind of introduces the premise. So it goes, let's make a movie called Dinosaurs in the Hood. Uh, and it includes lines like... Um, don't let Tarantino direct this. In his version, the boy plays with a gun, the metaphor black boys toy with their own lives, uh, the foreshadow to his end, the spitting image of his father. Uh, and then there's, this is not a vehicle for Will Smith and Sophie Vergara. I want grandmas on the front porch taking out raptors with guns they hid in walls and under mattresses. I want those little spitty, screamy dinosaurs. I want, and then from there you get a few of these I wants. Because I guess this poem is about that, isn't it? It's really about what he wants and it's about this desire to kind of end mm. stereotypes of race and yeah it's brilliant and he wants to be able to tell the straightforward story without any of the the enormous amounts of baggage and exactly prejudice and all of that 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 gets in the way yes it's 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 a it's a brilliant poem because it's it's a bit funny and then it also kind of punches you and you know brings you up short and it's also very sort of it's very soulful and yearning Exactly. And well, so yes, it's well worth uh, seeking out. The whole poem is posted on poetryfoundation.org. And better still, you can find footage of Denez Smith reading it on YouTube. Really brilliant. So go and find that if you can. Um, now, coming up on this week's show...
Chinese typewriters were cumbersome instruments that required, in some cases, the use of the whole body and a pointing stick. We'll hear about this and more from Rana Mitter, who'll talk us through a new book about the difficult job of adapting the Chinese script for the modern age. And Fiona Benson will read us her new poem, Edelweiss. But first, let me give you the opening lines of a piece in this week's TLS by Benjamin Markovitz, the novelist, critic and teacher of creative writing at Royal Holloway in London. The essay belongs to a literary tradition with a certain amount of reluctance baked in. We all grow up having to write them when nobody really wants to. At my children's school, they don't even use the word if they can help it and refer instead to persuasive paragraphs. Of course, none of the teachers wants to read them either. It's a rather downbeat start to a long and enlightening review of a book entitled The Glorious American Essay, an anthology of essays from colonial times to the present, selected by Philip LePate. Benjamin Markovitz joins us on the line between classes, I think, to tell us more. Hello, Benjamin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so you're unromantic about the essay. Uh, is that fair to say? I mean, you recognise the often quite banal and uh, maybe undemocratic circumstances of the essay's creation. Yeah, well, as I speak, I'm sitting in my office at Royal Holloway, and this is a place where I occasionally get handed huge stacks of essays, which are the last thing that anybody would ever want to read. And so <laughs> part of what you do when you get these stacks is you try to decide if they're any good or not. And sometimes, especially when dealing with classic literature, you can forget to ask that question. Do I actually think this is any good? And so the book was a chance to read all these essays, many of them by famous writers, and decide if I thought they were worth it or not. Mm. And I suppose um, the undemocratic point that I, that I alluded to there was... Um, how a lot of the time commissions only really come about kind of fortuitously because you know the right person or, um, or, or you know, you have some kind of in somewhere. Yeah, I spent a long time not being published. And I actually <laughs> had one, I, I used to have one of those, you know, those yellow writers and artists yearbook things where you're supposed to get lists of agents. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sat in the basement and I sent off my manuscripts and nobody responded to me. And it was at the same time when I was starting to review books. And I mean, it's not a surprise. Some of the books I reviewed, I didn't think they were that good. And I just couldn't get anywhere to, to, to take my work. And so one of the things that struck me about the essay, and actually I would like to have seen a little more details about this in the collection itself, is just how did these things get published? Where did they mm. get published? What mm. was the relationship that allowed them to be published? Exactly, because a lot of the time, and speaking now as a commissioning editor, a lot of how it happens at this end is, is if you know a writer well enough to know the kinds of things that might interest them even, you know, if, if you know that right. someone is fascinated by, uh, I don't know, uh, tiny things, <laughs> you, you think, oh, well, they can write an essay about miniaturism or, or whatever it is. So you, you kind of it sort of relies on there being this established relationship between a writer and an editor, I suppose. When the piece comes to you, do you have a sense now of what you're looking for, what makes you like it and not like it? I think a lot of it, and I'm sure we're going to go into this in, in a lot, more depth but a lot of it is just it's just in the way it holds itself the way it carries itself and how generous it is and and how much of a person is in it I think it's also a question of confidence isn't it that's partly yeah. why I think it, maybe there needs to be a relationship there because if it was a first time writer it would be unlikely to say okay I've never read anything that you've written but why don't you write me a personal essay about cheese do you know what I mean that would be who knows what that would be like? I mean, it might be brilliant. I'd read that. Yeah, maybe we should do that. <laughs> but it's more likely that you sort of know that, that you know that you like the writing of the person already. And so yeah. because it's, it is quite a, a, a leap of faith, I think. Yeah, it's, it involves trust, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I felt actually when I, when I sent in this piece, there were bits in it that I thought maybe I should take them. I make a joke about dogs and essays. <laughs> and I thought, so I, I probably would not have made that joke uh, whatever it was, 15 years ago when I first got commissioned to write for the TLS. And now that I've been doing it a while, I thought, okay, you guys can edit it out if you want to take away the dog joke. Um, <laughs> we left it in. Reader, we left, you left it in. It. <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> well, okay, so that, that's how we feel about essays, uh, more or less. Philip LePate seems, um, he seems more awestruck to you, I think, um, compared to you, Benjamin. Um, I mean, the title, the title of the book certainly suggests that. Um, so w what, what is the essay to him? I think he's, I don't know if he's more awestruck. I think his brow is probably higher than mine. And there are essays that he responds to, which seemed a little too clever to me. I mean, I thought a lot of the essays in the book were great, 
but occasionally you'd get some lines and I quote, I think from a Mary McCarthy essay in which she says clever things about America and the atomic bomb that just strikes me as a little bit too easy. Um, there's also, and I say this as someone sitting in a university, there's, not, there's a whole category of essay that I think you can really only read when you're a student, like mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot, like Eliot's essays. Mm. They seem really exciting when you're 19 or 20. And then by the time you reach middle age, you just think, why are you talking like that? <laughs> I suppose when you're reading them in your in in your your you know your late teens or, or early twenties, you're immersed in that world of the intellectual. And so when Philip LePate talks about essays, he's talking about them as I think his term is intellectual bellwethers, isn't he? Right. And so when you're reading T. S. Eliot, it's because you're you're interested in how the individual talent relates to uh, the canon or, or whatever it is. Whereas then, when you step outside of the walls of, of academia, it is harder to make the case for for that sort of, you know, what, what is it telling us about the world? Yeah, I mean, you, you guys mentioned that how an essay carries itself matters to you when you see it on the page. And there's a funny thing that happens to people when they start writing essays in which they just start sounding a little weird and they use words like <laughs> moreover and howsoever and they talk about lexical registers and they just start saying things that they would never say in ordinary life. And part of what happens to you as a novelist, I think, is that you start to value the kind of language that people actually use because it seems in its own way subtler than the sort of language that you got taught to write in school. It can get very rather lofty very quickly, can't it? As though you're basically being preached to from on high, which I suppose maybe when you're a student, you can take a certain amount of that. And after a while, you have less patience. I was struck by, I mean, I'm sure you'll mention it later, but Nora Ephron's essay is very much not like that at all. She's amazing. That was great, I thought, the essay. Yeah. And you just, you just felt like there was a human being at the other end. I mean, I can't remember, is it, is it, this will show my ignorance, I only have it secondhand anyway. Is it Montaigne or Voltaire who says something like, I expected to find a writer and I found a man? That's Montaigne, isn't it? I think. He, he was the essay man, Montaigne. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Essay. Well, I don't know if he, I, I don't know if he said that, actually. Probably. Probably did. Yeah. Let's go with yes. <laughs> Let's take away man and say human being or mensch at the end of it. And it's truer. Like if you read something and you feel like, okay, there's a person at the end of that, uh, that you can imagine having an actual conversation with. then I think the essay has done a good job, but sometimes mm-hmm. you read essays and there's no person at the end of it that seems recognizable as someone you'd want to talk to at a dinner party, for example, that was the other kind of comparison I made in my piece. Yeah. I wondered, I wondered on that point, you were talking there about, um, about novelists and 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 developing an interest in the way that people actually talk and again it's a similar thing with the, with the dinner party analogy there do you think that novelists or people who work in fiction with fiction um tend to make the best essayists i mean that's obviously a huge generalization to make there but is is there something about drawing out the sympathies between those forms i think some novelists are very comfortable writing uh i don't want to say abstract essays but writing critically and some novelists are really just happy when they're telling stories and some essays can take the form of stories mm. but I don't think it's uni- I don't think it's you know always true of novelists that this is a form that they're comfortable in no I suppose I'm thinking of someone like Zadie Smith who who exists so perfectly in, in both in both genres right she can do the academic side of things though as well can't she I yeah. think Zadie Smith I think she's quite unusual actually and, and I, th- I think it also informs her novel writing style that mm. sometimes a chapter in a, a Zadie Smith novel will be a sort of essay on the characters and what they're going through mm. let's pedal back a bit because we've gone straight from from well we've gone straight to the end of the to, to modern times whereas the, the the anthology that we're talking about spans some 300 years, I think it starts with um, colonial times, doesn't it? So could you give us a, kind of a sense of, of, of the sorts of essays that we that we find in this book? What sort of thing will we find ourselves reading about? And, and how does it how does it start? I'm assuming they're chronologically arranged. Yeah, the chronological. The first one is by Cotton Mather, the priest, the, the preacher who talks about his you know, mixed feelings over poetry because on the one hand he really likes it on the other hand it doesn't always seem virtuous to him i'm just glancing through it as i go there's some of thomas Paine thoughts on the present state of american affairs so you get some political writing uh, you get one of lincoln's speeches you get ben franklin and then as you get go on you get some more personal stuff from you know, emerson and hawthorne talks about uh, it's a funny essay about regretting the advi- the arrival of the stove 
in his family home because it means he's had to give up on the open fireplace. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a, I mean, I've, let me quote something here, which sort of sums up part of the argument I wanted to make in my piece, which is just about how the, the use of the eye has changed. In 1782, there was a Frenchman called J. Hector St. John de Clevecoeur. You can probably pronounce it much better than I can, who wrote a piece about being a farmer in America. And this is what he has to say. I married, and this perfectly reconciled me to my situation. My wife rendered my house all at once cheerful and pleasing. She would often come with her knitting in her hand and sit under the shady trees, praising the straightness of my furrows and the docility of my horses. This swelled my heart and made everything light and pleasant. And I regretted that I had not married before. I pick on that now. It's one of the things I underlined as I went through just because on the one hand, he probably thought by the standards of his times, he was being really open and intimate. But I don't think any one of us now would think that was a kind of acceptable account of the reasons to marry, that your wife is going to praise <laughs> the straightness of your furrows and the docility of your horses. And it just it just doesn't sound like a human being the way we recognize them now. So something has obviously changed right in the past 200 years that we can talk a little better than that about the pleasures of marriage. Well, and that's interesting because that's partly what makes your your piece, your review so um, refreshing is that you do approach this task of reviewing the book as a teacher, you know, red, red pen in hand. You suggest that there's a bit of a dry period, really, until the 1840s, I think. And there's an essay by Ralph um, Waldo Emerson called Experience, which, you know, announces itself as a personal piece, really, doesn't it? Um, and you praise it a bit, but it still leaves you rather cold. And is that because it doesn't have enough of that eye in it? Yeah, that's part of it. And I mean, you can have a narrative shape without the eye. It's not really that interested in narrative shape. It does seem a kind of amazing achievement if over the past 200 years, we've gotten a slightly more sophisticated eye to work with. That seems like an advance of self-consciousness. But while I was reading the essays, I was always think I was also thinking, I don't know if our fiction has gotten better. And I say this as someone who writes contemporary fiction. Uh, I don't know that the cultural access we get to self-knowledge. I mean, that's sort of one of the points of, of culture, isn't it? That it gives you access to self-knowledge if that has improved our fiction, but it mm. does seem to have improved a kind of intimacy in our essay writing. Mm. And I wonder mm. whether there's a trade-off there, whether the kind of culture that produces good essay writing might not always produce the same quality fiction. I don't know. What do you guys think? It's true, I suppose, because in 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 an essay, for example, part of what we, we can observe, what seems we can observe, is that there has been this kind of leveling um, within the essay between, you know, the, it used to be all about profound observations of ancients or intellectuals. Uh, and there was no room for those of the writer, the, the real person who was sitting there writing and, and thinking and feeling. And that, and, that, and that clearly has changed. I don't know, it's harder to make that call when it comes to fiction. Is it, I mean, could you argue that uh, fiction has talked about I an awful lot in at least the past hundred years? Uh, I mean, enormous amount. I mean, George Eliot didn't talk about herself. Jane Austen didn't talk about herself. But since Proust, sort of more or less, not exactly Proust, there's been an awful lot, certainly recently, of some version or other of autofiction. Mm. So maybe people have got more used to writing about themselves in fiction. And maybe that's, you know, spilled over. And, and that's not always good. <laughs> Sometimes it's good, but not always. But I think it is a change. I think that's probably true. There's a change. I mean, I, I studied the romantics and they did talk about the eye quite a lot. Byron did and Wordsworth obviously wrote the prelude and uh, was very comfortable with the eye. But you get the sense that their eye was veiled to some degree. Mm. Mm. In Wordsworth's case, by the, the Miltonic language. So you could never think that you were his intimate. You felt like you were talking to a kind of an open stranger. Yeah. Or he was rhapsodizing at you. Yeah. And I just I'm I've just actually got out of teaching a class on the great American novella. In the first week, we read the Scarlet Letter, and he Hawthorne, who's represented in this essay, in his essay collection, believes quite strongly that you should reveal yourself, but behind a veil. And there's something about the mm -hmm. veil of fiction that I th think allowed the earlier eyes to do their job, but that you take away the fiction and people weren't comfortable. But I think that tension is part of what makes the fiction so interesting in like the mm. 19th century novel. Mm. And in essays, do you think part of it, the way that we handle this eye now is part of what makes it successful is the extent to which we can, uh, the writer can reveal vulnerabilities 
almost. I'm, I tend to be, I, my ears pricked up when I got the sense that the writer was revealing themselves in that way. This is a long book and some of it is quite formal. And if I got the sense that someone was telling me about their sex life, I paid attention. That maybe says more about me as a, write, as a reader than, uh, than as a critic. So I'm usually curious about the moments when I feel like someone's opening up and I'm less curious about the moments when I feel like they're on a podium. Um, mm. I think that's a fairly normal human reaction. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you would think so. <laughs> you, would, you would kind of hope so. But I suppose I suppose back in the day, maybe it was it was more about being impressed by uh, by the grand figure of the writer. So the I that as the, as the I existed in the essay, it was a very conscious construction, um, a kind of a raising up of the self to belong to the pantheon of 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 the writers of of, of previous times. Um, whereas I think that is that is less the case. Um, now yeah and and i think it does you know that sense of grandeur does allow you to say certain kinds of things that are harder to say otherwise so the emerson essay is a good example i you know, i complain a little bit about how little how rarely he opens up his coat and shows us what he's feeling because ostensibly that essay there is about it's written in the aftermath of his his son's death isn't it it is though it its subject is really much broader than that. And it, you know, I think his son's death occupies less of the subject than less of the essay than it would to us now. Um, for whatever reason, I think we'd be more open about how much our kids mattered to us than he could be. But he also says this extraordinary things. I quote this in the, in the piece, there's an optical illusion about every person we meet. In truth, they're all creatures of given temperament, which will appear in a given character whose boundaries they will never pass. But we look at them, they seem alive, and we presume there is impulse in them. And I think he could write that partly because of his grand sense of purpose, that it would be harder to write now in an essay because we might feel like we're being a little pompous or something like that. So there there are virtues to the old-fashioned hesitations as well, but it's limiting. But that also seems to me quite emotional. They, you know, the people seem alive, but that, I mean, that seems to me someone who's struggling with human contact. I mean, he's putting it fairly formally, but that's that's still a a struggle going on, isn't it? Yes, that's very, it's, I think it's very emotional. And in fact, you get a stronger sense of the emotion for the formal language, which suggests that he's the struggle with human contact that you mentioned. Um it reminded me a little bit of a line in a Larkin, I don't know if it was a Larkin essay or an interview in which he says, there's a moment in your life when you realize there's a limit to what other people's personalities can offer you. And there's, and there's a limit to what your own personality can offer you in itself. Yeah. Gosh. And that's, that seems like, that seems like the kind of idea I would pay to have someone tell me that seems like a a really (laughs) powerful insight even if it's depressing. Just to sit you down at the age of 12. And <laughs> yeah. so, by the way, but it is also, that's, that seems to, I know it, that sounds quite cold, but that's a very emotional thing. You think, gosh, what, how, how did you get to this? You know, why do you think that? Right. And, and I don't think Emerson would feel like he had to retrace all the personal details of the effect on his marriage and the death of his kid mm. in order to get us there. He just wants to get us there. Uh, but the other, there are other, so a lot of the book is about identity. And part of what I thought about is that, the culture gives us terms for understanding ourselves and we kind of have to make use of them. And those terms make some kinds of self insight possible, but they also rule out others. So I'm, I just teach, I just came from teaching a class on Bartleby the Scrivener. And as quite often happens in my classes, the students want to see it as a story about mental health and mental health is a very powerful narrative that allows us to spot lots of things that are going wrong with people, but it's just one kind of narrative. And there are other sorts of narratives that you can use to describe human experience that sort of get shut out by the mental health narrative. And many of these writers belong to a time when you didn't have the mental health narrative. So you had to think of other ways of talking. And those ways can be very interesting. Some of these essays you say are interesting just because of how of how bad they are. Um, so, I mean, lines like that are kind of critical catnip, really. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us a bit more? I mean, what what in particular um, made an essay bad? Um, if you, if you want to pull it, pull, uh, I don't know if you particularly want to name and shame any particular writer. I mean, I assume they'll be long gone. Um, or just if you want to just sketch briefly what, what really doesn't work for you. So I think, I think I make fun of Einstein's 
essay and like what has Einstein ever done well right um, <laughs> it's a minor player really exactly what, what did he ever do like who the hell is he I think he can get away with not being a good essay uh, and my, I actually I did cut this from it there's a there's a Seinfeld episode in which he gets dumped by a woman he's dating who is a cashier at the supermarket and she dumps him because she has just seen his act and she says about his act you know it just didn't make it for me it was so much fluff and one of the funny things about Einstein is that his essays was a lot of fluff uh, so I can quote the opening of it. Um, he says things like, how strange is the lot of us mortals. Each of us is here for a brief sojourn. Um, and a, he can't get this essay published unless he's Einstein, right? There's no way you guys would accept, <laughs> accept that kind of thing. And there's a, really, there's a really great Henry James essay in which he says that the duty of fiction is to be interesting. And he doesn't describe what constitutes interesting writing deliberately. He wants to leave that vague because you have to fill it in yourself. But one of the things that the Einstein essay made me think is that he had no idea of the difference between his interesting thoughts and his uninteresting thoughts. Mm, because no one would tell him anymore because presumably by that point he was so, so grand. Right, no one's going to tell him. And of course, a lot of what makes a good essay is that you can distinguish between your interesting thoughts and your uninteresting thoughts. Yeah. Is it something to do with you mentioned also that abstraction doesn't 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 do well? It's trying to make grand pronouncements, grand universal pronouncements, doesn't really work. I don't think so. I mean, it's I think it's something that a lot of writers have to unlearn because part of what makes you want to be a writer is you do well in school and you get good grades on your essays and you get rewarded for cleverness. And at some point, you realize that the cleverness is not the best way in to what it is you want to talk about. And so most writers, I think, have some strategies they develop to hide their cleverness. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And in some of these essays, I didn't get the sense that those strategies had been fully deployed. Mm. I suppose it comes back maybe to that this sort of link to that vulnerability thing before of if, if someone is projecting their cleverness, cleverness can quite often come across as snark or it can be just doesn't really tend to endear you to a person if they're if they're showing off, I suppose. Um, so it, it would be about finding a way to to um, to bring that cleverness in 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 in, in a way that isn't uh, divisive somehow or exclusive. Yeah, and I think there's also a kind of social niche thing that goes on in that if you're a writer, you tend to hang out with other writers, and everybody you know shares the same frame of reference and are interested in all the weird books that you like. But this is not the human condition. And so you become a little bit like the office bore who can only talk about accountancy if you're an accountant or real estate if you're a real estate person and that you do the same thing with your books. And so you have to, on some level, recognize that there are humans out there who you know, don't care about Emerson's self-reliance. And that can't be true. It's, <laughs> I'm afraid. Don't tell us that on the TLS podcast. <laughs> I've, heard of the, I've heard of these people, at least. <laughs> you say yourself... Um, that maybe you should have spent more time talking about the really good essays in this collection. So, uh, so let's end with a little about uh, one or two of them here. You, you mentioned Nora Ephron before, uh, but anything else you'd like to kind of point us straight to if we pick up this volume? I mean, there's a great one by Sui Sin Far about being, she calls it Eurasian in America. And it's just, a, it's a really beautiful account of her experiences as a Chinese American woman. And part of what makes it so good is how straightforwardly it's written but also with how much sympathy sometimes for the people from whom she suffers discrimination. And it was, it was written in the 1890s, wasn't it? Yeah. So somebody says uh, something racist um, about Chinese people. They always give me such a creepy feeling, puts in the young girl with a laugh at a shop. And then she explains that, I think it's her mother who's Chinese, there's silence in the room for a few minutes. Then Mr. K pushes back his plate and standing up beside me says, I should not have spoken as I did. I know nothing whatever about the Chinese. It was pure prejudice. Forgive me. I admire Mr. K's moral courage in apologizing to me. He's a conscientious Christian man, but I do not remain much longer in the little town. And it's written in that straightforward manner, but with great subtlety of feeling and a willingness to show people's prejudices sometimes not in a sympathetic light but in the mixed light in which she's had to deal with them i just think it was an incredibly powerful piece of writing i pointed out that it was it was um you said 1890 
Um, yeah. But something like that can still feel so fresh that it hasn't dated uh, at all compared to, say, one of the essays that you quote from, uh, which is Melville writing uh, to Hawthorne about Hawthorne, uh, which dated almost as soon as it was written, purely because it was so sycophantic. Yeah, I know. Did you read that essay? It really is uh, not good. Um, but so, yeah, had, that, that piece had not dated at all. Uh, and I I some so I can't I'm trying to think who who said this line that there was a he wrote Faulkner Cheever I think mm-hmm. it was Cheever who said something like uh, a page a page of perfect prose is immortal or some something about how hard it is to write a page of prose that does not date mm-hmm. and if you can do that that's really a remarkable achievement uh, to write a page of prose in which there's nothing in it that you would be ashamed of 200 years later or that would show how blinkered you were at the time. And part of what you want from writers is that they can have that sort of stainless steel view of the world that never rusts and never grows old. Um, E.B. White's another one, his account of the death of a pig is just great. Mm. A lot of people would point to someone like James Baldwin for that as well. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, just unbelievably powerful and depressing account of being arrested in Paris because of a friend of his stole some hotel sheets, which he then borrowed. Uh, and written in a, a, a sort of relentlessly neutral, but also vivid and particular prose that that flows uh, in a kind of straight, not unemotional line, but the line doesn't go up and down from the beginning of the story to the end. On the 19th of December in 1949, when I'd been living in Paris for a little over a year, I was arrested as a receiver of stolen goods and spent eight days in prison. My arrest came about through an American tourist whom I had met twice in New York, who had been given my name and address and told to look me up and just goes on like that. And you just, you're taken through this experience where he's in the middle of a prison with no access to any outside help. And he feels like he's never coming out. And part of what it makes of what part of what it makes him think of is his experience as an African-American and how he thought he could escape it by going to France and the sense of a recognition of who has the power in any situation that he has acquired by being black in America. Mm. It's a great piece of writing. Mm. I'm going to have to leave you because I know you have eager minds to uh, to, to teach. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like this book. I mean, you know, you you're not thrilled by all of all of the, the essays that have been included, but it sounds like it's something worth having and holding because of the conversation that it that you can have with it. You know, you can you can disagree with it and you can be surprised by it and you can be probably enraged by it uh, all in one sitting. Yeah, and why should I like the whole of the book? You've got a hundred different writers here. There's there's no way an anthologist could put together an anthology that anybody should like from start to finish. And it seems to me a part of the interest of the book that you can have these different reactions to the writers and try to work out what you like and what you don't and why. That sounds um, like exactly what we need. So uh, Benjamin Markovitz, many thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come on the show, a new poem by Fiona Benson and a tale of language, obsession and genius in modern China. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to the challenges of modern Chinese, there's time for a poem. There's always time for a poem uh, about, well, the challenges of motherhood. Uh, Fiona Benson has written a beautiful and poignant poem called Edelweiss, and she joins us now. Fiona, hello, and thanks for coming on. Hi, Thea. Thank you for asking me, and thank you to Camille for taking this poem. It's a beautiful poem. She couldn't have said no. Um, Is there... Is there anything that you'd like to say by way of introduction about, I don't know, the, the genesis of the poem, or would you prefer to just let it speak for itself, which it does yeah, very eloquently? Thank you. It's just um, it's just about the early days um, of child rearing and having a very sleepless baby. Edelweiss. Sometimes I walked my daughter in her pram indoors, drew the heavy curtains, so we moved in velvet blue, then rocked her back and forth, back and forth, to try and get her off to sleep. She was relentless in her wakefulness, and I was bloodshot and twitching, reeling under the weight of my own exhaustion. She wouldn't take a bottle, insisted on the breast. At every painful station of the night, I prized myself from sleep. Dreams sluicing off my skin, brought her into bed and sat up shivering to feed her, the mouth for whom my body was made. The muscles of my neck kept easing, snapping back, exhausted puppet, doll head, afraid I'd smother her or drop her, afraid to sleep. In the middle of the day, I'd wheel her in the second-hand Victorian-style pram that lurched along on its shop suspension as its capacious black hood slipped inevitably back like a broken concertina, a retracting fan. How I loathed the thing, its thoughtless summoning of the 19th century's infant dead, its black bassinet like a hearse, and our baby girl staring up from its deep bed with her vast dark eyes shining and alert, as if she felt my fears and didn't mean to sleep. That day, I wanted a lullaby to soothe us both, but couldn't recall a song, couldn't remember being sung to, and sadness was upon me as I faltered on the only hush thing I could improvise. Edelweiss, the same two half-remembered lines crooned over and over again, a fragment of song for a tiny flower, its gleaming shred. All round me the dark was rising tenderly, our false-created night, its texture and felted weft thickening like an alpine meadow, its softly-flowered grass and I was falling in its dark blue lush, its reservoir of stars. As my grandma Bairstow, who'd been dead for years, took my hands off the pram and laid me down to rest, then began to wheel her great-granddaughter, who seemed to know her, and resumed the song. 
She knew all the words, knew all the sore and phosphorescent work of raising children, how mothers move in the dark like shining wounds, like gaps in being. She sang, and all the hurt and beautiful universe, all the souls came crowding in. Thank you very much, Fiona. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Fiona Benson's new collection of poems, Ephemeron, will be published next month. Now, we've been talking about language quite a bit recently, bilingualism, translation, what it means to lose or gain languages. But we haven't talked about the process of writing them down, whether you're using a pen, a smartphone or a computer. We might assume that it's relatively straightforward, but perhaps that's because we're looking at it from a rather privileged point of view, being English speakers. Since a lot of the widespread technology of communication has come from Anglophone nations, it was developed primarily for English. Now, as Professor Rana Mitter points out in his fascinating piece about adapting the Chinese script for the modern age, that's fine if you're British or American, a problem if you're French or Russian, and a huge obstacle if your writing system was not even alphabetic. Luckily for us, Rana Mitter is here today to walk us through it. Rana, thanks very much for joining us. Hello, Lucy. Great pleasure to be here. So in your piece, which is a review of a book called Kingdom of Characters by Jing Su, you say the story of the mid 20th century in particular is one of technologies fundamentally incapable of accommodating the Chinese script. Can you tell us what, why that is? What, why is it so difficult? Well, I think I can tell you that, Lucy, through painful experience. I should say, first of all, that Jing Su's book, uh, Kingdom of Characters, is a fantastic history of the way in which across the 20th century the Chinese have tried to use different forms of emerging technology uh, whether it's the typewriter or the telegraph or even some methods of technology that don't begin with the letter T to accommodate their script which is very different from any alphabetic script in the western world and I do recommend people to, to read it it's a fabulous read so why should it be so difficult well I speak as someone who started studying Chinese when I was 18 as an undergraduate which I have to confess is a few years ago and we were given a pretty straight down the line view of this by our tutors um, on day one, which is that, you know, the rest of your contemporaries as undergraduates uh, who are doing other subjects will be out there, they'll be playing sports or they'll be, you know, doing music or they'll be, you know, down at the bar. And you're going to spend an awful lot of time practicing this language because the only way to deal with the Chinese language in its written form is really to keep learning, writing, learning, writing the characters which make it up. And that's basically at the heart of why things are so different. Alphabetic scripts, even though they have their complexities, as in the case of, of Arabic or Divanagari, the, the script used for Sanskrit, Hindi and other Indian languages, there's nonetheless a le relatively limited number of symbols you need to bring together to create meaning, you know, 26 famously in the case of, of, of the, the Western Latin alphabet. But in the case of Chinese, Although there are elements of the Chinese characters that you write down that do have similarities to each other, overall, you basically have to learn each one. And to get basic literacy, you're talking about the use of at least a few thousand. And you can see why that might be a very um, daunting enterprise, considering that Chinese characters are so complicated that they're often actually used uh, as examples of, of, of sort of artistic beauty in their own right because they look so elegant. But in that elegance, there's also the need to actually learn how to repeat them over and over again and make them produce meaning. So is it that, I'm sorry, forgive my ignorance, I am speaking from a, from a um, very little knowledge here, I've been trying to read up on it. Is it the case that, so you can't do, say, for instance, what you might do in German, such as just put two words together and make a portmanteau word? You, you, you have to actually just learn each word. Not quite. The portmanteau idea actually is quite important. And it's a bit people who know German, again, will, will know this way in which you can sort of put together two, uh, two, two words and they, they, they make, mm -hmm. a, make a third. The difference here is between the character, which is the, um, you know, wonderful array. I mean, again, for those who probably many people who are listening to this podcast don't read Chinese and there's no reason why, why they should. But if you look, you know, perhaps call up a Chinese character on, on Google or something and just have a look at it, you'll see it consists of various elements. It's the learning of those elements that come together that takes the time. There are some repeated patterns, but the patterns are much, much more numerous than they would be for an alphabet. Now that's separate from taking those characters and putting them together in a sequence where you're absolutely right. You can take two of them, perhaps three of them sometimes, and they will form 
another word. So to give one quick example, if you take the character Dian, which means lightning, the word lightning Dian can also in more modern Chinese be used to refer to things that are electric. And if you combine that word Dian, lightning, with Shu, meaning to see, then, um, or vision, then you basically get Dian Shu, which is uh, a way of uh, saying television. So in other words, once you know what the component elements actually are, you can um, work backwards to see how the component elements written as characters made up that word, but you have to learn what the characters are in the first place. So that's where the complexity comes uh, comes in. So th- those are the difficulties. To go back to some of the ways of, of surmounting it, which is what uh, Jing Su talks about in, in her book, um, the telegrams in particular sound sound very cumbersome. Can you tell us what they, what they did um, to transmit the telegrams? Indeed, or Dian Bao uh, in Chinese telegram, electric. Uh, because it's electric. Yes, r- I just r- learned r- that. <laughs> so you just learned that. You see, learning Chinese already and the Bao meaning, <laughs> meaning, meaning a report. But the use of telegrams, you know, an absolutely core technology from the mid 19th to mid 20th century all around the world um, was particularly difficult in Chinese because, of course, um, in English, all you have to do is send out uh, alphabetic messages with the word stop in between the uh, various uh, 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 areas of meaning. And that's all, all, all you have to do. In the case of Chinese, essentially, um, there were various methods that were thought about, but the one that became dominant was to take a series of four, uh, four number codes, each code referred to a certain character, and then you basically send them along the wires, and you have to sort of decode into the numbers to send them from one place to another, and then the person at the other end has to re-encode them taking the numbers and putting them back into what the characters are. Now, of course, over time, as with any other such tactic, there were telegraph operators who became very familiar with the codes. And there are uh, were books and manuals to show you how to, how to do it. But compared to simply being able to send something alphabetically, it was much, much more cumbersome. And telegrams, while they, they were very widely used in the Chinese-speaking world, were by no means as quick and easy as they were in, let's say, the Anglophone world. Mm, because that's in, in in effect introducing another level. It reminded me when I read that in your piece about the solfege system of uh, music learning that solfege that they use in um, France and maybe Italy, Theo, I don't know, mm. that yep. instead of saying the names of the notes, you say do, re, mi, and you have to say the do, re, mi before you, before you can sing it, as it were. And there's the or accompanying the hand gesture as well, isn't there? Yeah, and so you're putting something sort of in, in, in between it. Um, so it's so it's so it's, it's another level that you've got to be able to do with an already complex that, language. That's right. In fact, you put your finger on one of the things that Jingzhu writes about um, with um, a lot of uh, um, detail in the book, which is the way that you have to essentially use another code to get to the characters themselves in, in, in some cases. So one of the questions that many, many Chinese people have thought of over you know, centuries, let alone over the last century, and which has remained a major problem is, if you're Chinese and you're learning these characters, how do you learn them successfully? Because you know, learning the, the alphabet is um, uh, an issue that every youngster in you know, Britain or America, or wherever, has to, to work out. But it happens over a relatively short period of time because there's only 26 um, characters or 26 symbols to, to learn. Uh, in the case of Chinese characters, as I've in, uh, indicated, even though there are some patterns to help you learn um, uh, common elements, in practice, you do have to learn, you know, physically by repeating over and over again with a pen or with a brush, um, particular characters. And are there ways in which you can work out how the pronunciations can be remembered? So Chinese has itself, or China has itself developed over the years, many different systems to help you as a Chinese learner, learn how to pronounce these particular characters, because the character itself doesn't give you the, the pronunciation. Uh, you have to learn that separately. So the system still used to this day in Taiwan, which of course uses Chinese, called Bopo Mofo, which refers to um, the sounds put uh, expressed in various sort of short code-like strokes that are used essentially as a midway point between um, learning how a character is pronounced and uh, getting to master the actual character itself. And if that sounds rather complex, then it is. Hmm. I was about to say it did sound complex, but yeah, that, that's the way around it. There's another um, thing I was going to ask you about. I don't know. I don't know whether this is the right point. I was going to ask you about tones. How 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 do you deal with tones? But maybe we should talk about 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 where it's got to first, and then how you do that. Um, the so the subtitle of the book is a tale of language obsession and genius in modern China, um, and you say that it 
tells how some of China's greatest thinkers battled with how to, to communicate in written Chinese and indeed how to learn it. Um, can you give us some examples of these uh, these thinkers and what they what they what they thought up? Yes, absolutely. I mean, let me give you one example of someone who, in this you know rather specialized world, was something of a celebrity during the mid twentieth century. Not just because of his efforts on language, but more broadly because he became one of the best known Chinese uh, figures in the Western world. And he was a man named Lin Yutang. Now, his primary fame to Westerners came because he actually wrote a lot of books in English that talked about. China's you know, rapid development in the 20th century, its move from a kind of imperial society to one that was a republic. Um, amongst his famous books was a book called My Country and My People, which was published in 1935. So although he's perhaps not particularly well remembered in the Western world today, in the mid 20th century, if you talk to people who knew a bit about China, they might well have heard about Lin Yutang. But what even those readers might not have known a huge amount about was a major linguistic innovation which he pioneered. And that was a new system for trying to categorize and make easier access available to Chinese characters in a standard Chinese dictionary. Now, again, to explain something complex as briefly as possible, traditional Chinese dictionaries, and you know, I'm turning around actually my own office at the moment and having a look, and I can see some there, are big, thick things which basically depend on you using um, a kind of system of component elements. There are over 200 of them, and knowing most of what those are as a sort of starting point to looking up the characters. I won't go into it further than that, but let me just say that while you get used to it over time and actually like anything in life, it becomes quite quick once you're used to it. It's not the easiest and most accessible way to try and uh, manage your knowledge of, of Chinese characters. And the Chinese have, have felt this over the years as well. So mm -hmm. Lin Yutang comes along and he looked at these characters and he said, look, how do we write them? Well, first of all, every character is actually written in a very standard way in Chinese, in terms of order, you go broadly, you know, left to right, you might say, up to down. Uh, there are some exceptions, but broadly speaking, there's a direction of travel as you write one of these, uh, these characters. And he said, look, if we can use those brush strokes, which are fairly standardized in their order, starting from the top left, maybe that is a way to organize the um, way that we look up these Chinese characters. So Lin Yutang system, which um, isn't much used now, but actually had a period of, of some popularity amongst people who had to use Chinese dictionaries, both in China and in the wider world where they were, where, where they were learning Chinese. This proved to be a different way to do it, which meant basically you didn't have to memorize this 200 plus system of component elements or radicals as they're known that came in previously. So, in some, in, in some senses, what Lin Yutang did was to use a system, or rather contemplate the problem that everyone came across, which was these characters are complicated. What's the simplest possible way in which we can find some standardized, regularized way to access them? Just to give you one other example of, of another person during that period who did something mm -hmm. completely different. And that was a librarian who worked actually at the commercial press in Shanghai, a big sort of, um, you know, big publishing house like, like Penguin or, or Random House, you might say. Mm -hmm. And he was called Du Dingyo. Uh, known to the Western world as Bismarck Du, but uh, Du Dingyo is his um, uh, Chinese name. And Du basically used a system, which again is reproduced very beautifully. It's a little hard to describe, but it's in Jing Zhu's book, um, in which all Chinese characters were sort of minimized to eight sort of template forms. You'd have like a square and there's sort of a circle in the middle of it and use that to... Um, point to various different elements that existed within the character itself. And um, it's slightly easier to use, it would appear, than it sounds to describe. But even there, it is a system, to put it mildly, of some complexity. The nearest description I can give, which I've got in the review that's in the, in the TLS, is that when, when you see these templates, they look a bit like those flags, like, you know, the sort of the blue ensign, or I should those, but they're sort of signaling flags that, that ships mm. fly to indicate their status. So leaving port, entering port, you know, warning disease on board, whatever yeah a little bit like that but but there's lots more of them <laughs> but there's lots more of them and it just once again shows that this is this is not the easiest of enterprises to undertake because if it was then someone would have done it so, already yeah would have been mm -hmm. done and and of course well, this work that they're undergoing it's not just about no. organization and classification it's got quite radical but that's not supposed to be upon radical connotations should should they use romanization latin characters should they simplify i mean in a way to what extent should china change its language to suit modern times and even the west 
So you put your finger on one of the most compelling, most bitterly fought in some cases, debate about language in the late 19th and 20th centuries in China. And if you looked at this as a sort of bar graph, you might say that the peak period, really, for the idea that the Chinese should just abandon these extraordinary, beautiful, but deeply complex characters, and instead just go for Roman letters instead. The peak period for that sort of thinking was probably early to mid 20th century. The reason being that, first of all, there were examples that still are actually, of course, of, of other countries that does something similar. Vietnam mm. would probably be the most obvious one. Vietnamese, oh, we've got a new uh, participant on the podcast from the sound of it. Uh, <laughs> got a, uh, what the Chinese would call a, uh, well, oh, possibly a zogo, which they, they call the running dogs, although uh, I'm uh, sure this dog sounds like he's more barking than, than, than running. Yes, um, anyway, um, good, no, good, good, good to have him on board. So the, the Vietnamese, um, essentially under French colonial influence mm. did switch in uh, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the modern era to um, using um, Western uh, alphabetic letters with lots and lots of accents and diacritics to express Vietnamese. And that's what you'll still see um, today. There is a sort of form that more classical form that still does use a form of Chinese characters, but it's far less, less common these, these days. So a lot of reformers in China by the early 20th century were saying, well, look, we should do something like that. In practice, even from the radical reformers who had a certain amount of influence, there was never actually that much of a push to really dump them. Uh, it was discussed, but I think it would be misleading to suggest that it was a very likely occurrence. But what did happen was uh, two things. First of all, there was a continuing concern that the kind of technological change that we talked about earlier in the conversation, you know, the arrival of telegraphs, typewriters and so forth, was going to make Chinese obsolete one way or another. I mean, you know, we talked about the telegraph, but Chinese typewriters, which Jing Zhu has written about and the Stanford University scholar Thomas Mullaney has written an entire book called The Chinese Typewriter. So it's a great read, but, you know, it talks about the agonies of trying to find a technology that can typewrite for thousands of characters rather than just 26 letters. Oh. All of this made people think that, look, maybe this was not a sustainable System. But then the, the system, then the, the, the terms of discussion changed quite considerably. Actually, the Chinese characters were simplified in mainland China by the communist government after the 1950s. It still didn't make them easy exactly, but they were somewhat simpler than they had been in, in many cases. But then computers came along. And that's really one of the turning points in the story for, for Jinzu and actually for Chinese characters as a whole. Because essentially over the last, let's say, three decades, since the 1990s, the computerization of writing Chinese has gone from a, a quite clunky sort of process that involved lots of special software to something very, very mainstream, artificial intelligence, better quality of software together so basically you know everyone i think has come to come to know that these days china is a society that lives on its phones basically everything from ordering food particularly during covid ordering food to kind of getting your um you know financial credit and everything is just done straight through your your phone so when people are sort of spending their entire lives sort of manipulating their thumbs and fingers on their phone what are they typing and this is where some of the controversy comes in in many cases, not all, but in many cases, they're typing alphabetic letters. Mm. So the decision was made in the end that a system that was developed in China, but uses the Western alphabet called pinyin, would become the standard form of Romanizing Chinese. And it's transmuted into becoming the standard form of input of the, uh, the letters that will then become Chinese characters on people's phones and computers today. And every kid in a Chinese school will learn opinion will learn those letters and will learn it as it is of a, a quite easy and convenient system to uh, transmit transmit Chinese characters. The problem is not technological. The problem is political in the yeah. at the beginning. And even now, there are some people who say, do we have to use a Western system to actually put our language into the phone? The problem is that, of course, it turns out to be rem remarkably convenient. And in the end, people have adapted to it really very effectively. And is so, the pinyin is the pinyin word for say um, Xi Jinping, for example? Is that is that pinyin? Is what we see in the West pinyin, yes, and then yes, it gets translated? Exactly. So X I Xi J I N P I N G Jinping is his name as written in um, uh, in uh, pinyin romanization. But the right. clever thing that you'll notice if you use a Chinese phone for input is that. Text prediction, which, you know, predictive text is something we have, obviously, in Western phones, too, will is now really, really well set up to work out what you're trying to say. So 
if um, you're a native speaker of Chinese, and well, you know, I've been learning it for years, I wouldn't claim quite native fluency myself, but you know, even when I'm typing into a Chinese language um, software program, um, what I'll generally do is just type away, type away, type away in pinyin, and then come back afterwards and correct the mistakes, because now the artificial intelligence is so good at working out context of which characters are meaningful next to each other, that I'd say you have an over 90% success rate for most standard types of things you'd write, a letter or a message or a, an email or whatever. And you only need to do a little bit of kind of pruning work at the end when they've got the odd character that's wrong here or, or there. So actually, that question of pinyin entry, and there are other methods too. You can use Bopomofo or these other sort of indigenous Chinese methods if you really don't want to use Western characters. But an awful lot of people in China will use pinyin because that combined with artificial intelligence means that the problem of the mid-20th century that Chinese is very unwieldy to use with modern technology has really you know, been flattened out in a big way today. You know, Chinese still has its many, many complexities, but as a language that can be used with computers, well, let's just say the Chinese internet is not exactly small or trivial or uh, finding it difficult to make its impact felt. Clearly, technology and the Chinese language work together extremely effectively in the present day. And there's something quite ironic, isn't there, about the fact that, um, you know, so much of our communication technology is made in China. Um, there's something quite ironic about the fact that there is this dependency on a on feeding it in through a westernized kind of system. Well, there is. But of course, these days, the Chinese Internet, which you know is absolutely massive and has um, you know, hundreds of millions of users, is almost its own ecology. That, that's partly because the mainland Chinese government is keen to try and shut off the Chinese Internet from uh, what it regards as harmful influences, uh, harmful to the Communist Party anyway, from the outside world. But also because by definition, um, you know, you have to be a Chinese language speaker or writer in this case to take part in the Chinese internet. And while that's a very large proportion of the world's population, it's a proportion that's mostly concentrated in one part of the, the world. So of necessity, that's become a very large, but in some ways quite contained conversation that's perhaps a bit different from the English language conversation, which you know, goes from continent to continent because English has become a lingua franca in the way mm. that Chinese hasn't done. And that's also changed the way that people use the, you know, in Chinese is a very, very supple language in many ways, partly because of the character nature. So you can do puns, you can do word plays, all sorts of things using Chinese characters in a much more truncated way than you can do with language. And the internet has really enabled much of that linguistic suppleness. So I suppose, I mean, in a way though, that extra step is still there if you're using opinion isn't it it's just it's that the the um the technology has now become invisible as the, as the, as the algorithms as you say in the ai that's basically translating behind the scenes as it were even though you can put it in in your phone in the western alphabet yes i think the only stage at which you'll really be able to um uh, bypass that and i suspect that that's coming quite soon but not just yet i think in most cases is essentially if you wanted to handwrite the characters you would have done and a handwriting a chinese handwriting recognition program would then automatically convert those into full characters and send them on and then you would essentially be mm. just you know transmitting the chinese thought in your mind straight yeah. onto the the, the the tablet but again you know there's an issue with that because even you know when when we write um uh, something down on a, on a tablet we're not generally handwriting it we're actually using a form of typed input so even there there is a sort of stage that will still have to be overcome yeah. So it is it is really fascinating that there is a there, because there are all sorts of ideas, aren't, as you say, about about nationalism and what do we hold on to and what do we jettison and um, um, being modern and still um, remaining themselves. And actually, they have, as you say, that the, the, the Chinese have resisted um, getting rid of the characters. Um, but the, the the technology has has meant that they they've 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 got both the best of both worlds in a way is that does that make sense it does make sense, but I think it's worth pointing out some of the other factors that have contributed to that. I mean, first of all, there are other countries and other societies in that part of the world that have similar issues. Japan, which, of course, has you know, huge advances in technology during the Cold War period in particular, also mm. uses characters. But it also adds on to systems of syllabaries, which are not quite alphabets, but do enable you to write down things without needing characters. And Korean has gone even a bit further that, uh, yeah. that way. But those are societies that have the, the same sort of problem. But one of the or problem that they've overcome on my my say. But in the case of China, of course, a great deal of the reason that we're having this conversation now is something that isn't 
enabled by characters, but also perhaps have not been hindered by it either. And that is you know, China's economic growth, its ability to take on this strange combination of highly authoritarian and um, strong arming government with a lot of economic freedoms that's basically given them much more clout in the world so that both it's been necessary it's both been necessary for them to be able to uh, use that chinese writing capacity in a variety of contexts that just wouldn't have been thought of previously but also to have the economic and political heft and clout for it to matter to other people there are i'm sure other alphabetic yeah. systems elsewhere in the world that are also quite difficult to uh, um, to to transliterate but few of them have the political importance of chinese today yeah we we don't know about them because we don't we don't um they don't impinge on us the way that uh, that China does. And, and, and just that Chinese didn't you know, 25 to 30 years ago, but does now. So these things can change in historical terms in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's completely fascinating. Um, thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking us through. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. It's been a real pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Rana Mitter, Benjamin Markovitz and Fiona Benson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.